The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts 18, 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chentre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left with them there. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on, ta- and on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Asaiah, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Kevin. Kobe, sometimes you get those passages that have all sorts of cities and names and things. By the way, if you ever do want to um, have a help, we'll talk a little bit about this this morning, to read the Bible and um, listen to those. The Bible, yes, there's a lot of them, uh, Bible apps. I use particularly the ESV app on your phone. There's a deal where you can actually push listen to and it'll read it to you. And you can hear some of those names and cities and how they're pronounced and stuff like that. Um, or you can just make it up, you know, there you go. Uh, but that, it helps to have that as well. Um, you know, it was fun to watch the, um, what was it, 18 lead changes last night in the um, Final Four with uh, UNC North Carolina versus Duke. That was an amazing game. Uh, whether you're a basketball fan or not, it was really just fun to watch. And uh, I don't have, I'm not a huge, like, you know, from that area of the country, so I, I kind of enjoy both teams for their history and rivalry and everything else. And I really was, was excited for uh, uh, Coach K, uh, who's the head coach at, at Duke, since last time. I was really hoping that he would pull it out and go to the finals and have that kind of storybook ending. But uh, they ended up losing. And uh, sorry if I ruined it. If you haven't seen it, <laughs> it's all over the place. If you recorded it, you're like, man, I can't see it anymore. Uh, but essentially, it was interesting. You know, when you have a coach that's that tenured, who's been at a, a, a campus for so long and uh, has had that many wins, you know, the people that have come out of that program, I'm sure, have heard a lot of great wisdom, a lot of great things. Uh, a lot of maybe funny things from him. You know, you learn a lot from a coach. I had a, a number of coaches that really had an impact on me, particularly in high school and college. But one in, in high school, my football coach had some really wise things and also some weird things that he would say. Uh, you know, I don't know if you heard these lines like, you know, just like a turtle on a fence post wouldn't have got here unless somebody put us here. You're like, 
who says that? Like, no, no one puts turtles on fence posts. That's weird. Um, but basically, he's saying, you know, some the Lord, I guess, that's her way of saying God was at, at work and getting us where we are <laughs> in certain way. I also had a coach who, um, he'd say, you can be a honker and a waver, or you can be on this football team. And it was also, again, like, okay, we're, we're here. We're not going anywhere. We know what you're talking about. Well, where we played in our practice facility and stadium and whatnot, people would drive by all the time we were practicing, and they'd honk and wave out the window. And I remember him pulling us aside, and, and this is one of those things you just remember. I mean, why would I remember this? Well, he would say, you can be a honker and a waver, or you can be on this team. And what he wanted us to really understand by not just that phrase, but uh, the way he played it out was, it's one thing to drive by and uh, to act like you're a part of something. It's another thing to really suit up and be in it. To really put in the effort, to put in the work, like be on the field, go through the steps, feel the pain, be a part of this together. You know, um, the Bible, when it talks about the word disciple, it's in the middle of this passage. It actually says here in verse 23 <clears throat> that Paul was there strengthening all the disciples. I don't know how often we would consider ourselves a disciple. To us, maybe that word can be uh, a strange word. Maybe disciple comes with an action, maybe someone discipling you, but we may not think of ourselves as, as a disciple because maybe that word just comes a little intensely, connotes something really intense. But that's actually what the church is about. What a disciple is, is a follower. In fact, the word itself means learner. And when Acts was written, and this is actually our last, uh, um, last teaching on Acts before we, uh, we're finishing the book today, before we go into uh, Holy Week and such. But as we look at Acts, it was the second, you'll, you'll hear me say for the last time for a while, uh, it was written by Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke about, you know, those disciples. But Acts was volume two of that to say, how does the church make disciples outside of Jerusalem? How do, does the church grow? And what does it really mean for us to be followers of Jesus? Not just people who maybe come and try on this or that, but actually say, we're not just passing by. We actually are living in this intent relationship with Jesus. And that's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means. And it, it can really put in some people's minds to become a Christian. Now, if maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, I'm just trying to learn what it means to be a Christian, or, or maybe you're trying it back on again after being kind of burned or, or becoming cynical from it. But, but what it really means isn't a, a, what, what many might think as a fundamentalism or as a radicalism. It means a relationship. It means an intentional, we're in this, we're not just around it, we're following the Lord Jesus together. And that's what the church was. That's what Acts is about. And that's what you see in this passage. It's not just one person here or another person here. It's how are we doing this together? And so as we wrap up uh, this on Acts, we're going to look at what does it mean for us to be strengthened as disciples in the church? And it means just two things from this passage. It means our life and our learning our life and our learning as disciples. You know, it begins, this uh, passage uh, begins, it says, after this, Paul stayed for many days and then took leave 
of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sennetcre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And when I first read that, I thought, well, that's interesting. Why does Luke include that he's under a vow, that Paul put himself there? And that he, this vow that many say he probably was doing was to show his devotion and submission. And it doesn't say which vow, but because it says he cut his hair, that it was probably what was considered a Nazarite vow. It's a vow that you can read about in the Old Testament in that book Numbers, you know, and you, you, I'm sure you read Numbers all the time. Numbers in the Old Testament, which uh, Numbers, I think it's chapter 16 for the many uh, verses in there, talks about this Nazarite vow. And what it meant to take a vow and why he was doing this is it meant that he was dedicating himself to the Lord, be it he was, and it does, again, doesn't, Luke isn't specific, other than to let us know that he does it. But that to say he was devoted to the Lord, either in thankfulness for what God had done maybe in the previous city in Corinth, or that he was, he was doing it as to prepare his heart to say, God, and, and pleading to God about what is ahead, praying to him in, in direction and those kind of things. But what a Nazarite vow was, was this. It meant first that you, it was voluntary. It was completely voluntary. And men and women could do it. Uh, it was self-directed. So you could do it for a number of uh, you know, days. You could do it for 30 days. You could do it for 10 years. And part of what that meant was you refrained from anything, not just wine or strong drink, but grapes, like raisins, anything grape-related, which it would be an incredible inconvenience, particularly in, in this world where so much of that world revolved around what was grown on the vine. When you're at a meal and you can't eat that, that's an inconvenience to you, right? That's a big thing. Another thing was you couldn't touch anything dead, no contact with anything dead. But the other thing that was really big was, as you see here, was growing your hair out. Now you think about, I don't know how long the time here, it's, it's not as long as it could be, but regardless, it was, you know, think about this in the Old Testament. There are people who would grow there. You could have a Nazarite vow for three to 10 years, even more. You grow your hair out that long, that's some wild, long hair, right? I mean, I, I, remember I was just looking at some photos of myself. Uh, just, you know how your iPhone will, or, or phone will just pop up photos from things and like, hey, this is you and this day, however many, and you're like, why? It's just me. It's almost cruel that they do that sometimes. She's like, why are you showing me this? Sometimes you're like, oh, that's sweet. Other times you're like, oh, why would you show me that? You know, and this one was a picture of me with a hat on, like a, like a, a, a party hat on. I guess it was one of my, my kids' birthdays because it was around that time. And my hair was just like going like this. So my hair does that. And I often will go to the woman who cuts my hair and go, yeah, I know it's been a long, and she'll just laugh at me. You know, she doesn't really, she's gotten to the point where she doesn't even say, yeah, you need to come earlier. She just kind of laughs like, yeah, you got a problem. So it just, my curly hair will start curling around here and, and it'll just kind of lay down flat. And it literally was shooting out the sides. I thought, oh my gosh, it looks awful. But you know what I'm talking about? You have those moments. It's not just a bad hair day, but you go, that's a bad haircut. That's just bad hair. Like when you notice bad hair, you notice bad hair. And this vow was for that reason. Now think about this. What the vow was to do was to show his devotion. It was to, to for him to try on, okay, I'm not going to touch my hair, 
it would be something as a picture to those around them that he's setting himself apart to do this. And it would jolt. <clears throat> but it would really show this special devotion of his life to the Lord. Special devotion. This is what Paul was wanting to get across. And to, to be an example of that. You know, we're, we're in a period of Lent right now. And um, as we build up to Easter, and Lent was the celebration of the 40 days of Jesus in the uh, wilderness and uh, 40 days a night when he was fasting and those things. And oftentimes we may associate Lent with uh, maybe a specific tradition, be it Catholic or Episcopal or something like that. But it actually is not. It's, it's a broad understanding of that. And so sometimes we, whether it's whatever tradition we may come from, we can sometimes see Lent as, oh yeah, this is a great time for me to like not have caffeine or not have chocolate or put sugar over here or maybe, you know, really focus in on, you know, like you kind of think of those things. But what Lent is actually supposed to do is to set your mind and heart on what you're really loving. Because we can work at being devoted without really engaging what's here. So, so for instance, with Lent, it's, it's actually a focus to say, okay, what, is the, what are the patterns of my own sin? Or what are the ways that, that I feel like I'm being spiritually attacked? I was just talking to Parker about this this morning as we get closer to Easter. What, it is amazing how much more intensity of spiritual warfare I feel in my soul as we move towards Easter. And some of you may be like, really? Yeah. There's an intensity there. Because here, remember this, when the disciples were walking and following Jesus, what were the, and Jesus would say things every now and then. He's like, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And they were like, at first they listened to him and they kind of ignored, literally kind of were like, that's kind of weird. Okay, we'll just keep following you. The more he said it, the more they were like, you, why are you saying these things? In fact, Peter said, you're crazy, Stop. And what Jesus replied to him was, get behind me, Satan. Because his mission was the cross. And as a disciple, what it meant to actually follow Jesus wasn't just to receive teachings, and it wasn't just for us to grow in devotion. It was to grow in who are we really following? Because sometimes I think we can actually supply our own special devotion more than we can our relationship to the Lord himself. We can miss, as we can in Lent, we can miss the purpose of what it means for us to focus on our relationship with the Lord, less giving up things and thinking more about that than we do. It, it, it's, it, in some ways, it's like, uh, how can we put our, our, our time, our effort, our work into it without it? You know what happened at the end of a Nazarite vow? At the end of your vow as a Nazarite, you would cut your hair, and it doesn't say this here, and I don't know where Paul did this. There's a lot of debate about where he could do this. But you know what you're supposed to do? What, what do you do with your hair? You keep it? You put it in a lockbox? You say, look what I did? And you know, you know what you had to do? You had to burn it. You actually had to take it to the altar and sacrifice. As a part of a sacrifice with animals and other things, you would actually burn the hair. Because the Lord didn't want any of us, particularly in the Old Testament, for us to keep it. You couldn't, as a friend of mine, I remember a friend of mine talking about a Nazarite vow, who's a, a pastor. He said, there wasn't like, you couldn't post your Nazariting. <laughs> 
It's not like you could do like hashtag grapeless. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you can't hold on to the hair and be like, look what I've done for the last month. You know what I mean? Like you, there's none of that. There's no posting. There's no pictures. And you were to give that hair up and burn it because it was to drive you back to not your attainment, but to who God is. If we really want to learn more about what it means to be disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus, we need to really lean into the fact that these little bitty places where Luke gives us hints of Paul's life here are not just to tell us he went here and there, but to remind us to follow the Lord Jesus, it brings intensity. So much so that as we think about us moving closer to Good Friday and Easter, the cross of Christ, and you'll hear me say this more than once, is a crisis. It does produce, it does evoke, if we are to say we are followers, and we are followers of things, but if we we're going to say, as, as Paul talks about here, as Luke writes, that strengthening the disciples, if you want to strengthen your life in discipleship, if you want to know what it really means to be a Christian, it means that there's a, there is a, a movement towards the cross. And just like the disciples themselves, the, the, the first 12 were like, what are you, are you, are you crazy? It can feel that way. Because our souls need to know who is the Savior. Who, what are we really devoted to? Are we devoted our, to our kingdom or to his? This is where he takes them. This is where God goes. And, and not only that, the, the next passage actually unpacks even more. After it says in verse uh, 22 and 23 that Paul spent time there strengthening the disciples, we get a picture of a new one, a new disciple. In verse 24, named Apollos. A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent of the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, Apollos is a really cool character to me. Because he comes from a place of Alexandria. And, 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 and as we've looked at these cities, when Luke throws out a city, he he's kind of wants us to stop and almost double click on that. Because Alexandria was not just some uh, run-of-the-mill city. In fact, it was as Athens was the intellectual center of the Greek world, this was of the Egyptian world. In fact, it had the largest library in the in the in the entire world at the time. It had over four hundred thousand volumes of, of books. Incredible. In fact, there's a um, thing called the LXX, the Septuagint. Some of you may have heard that word. It means when the first volume of the Old Testament was written in Greek, it was about 200 years before Jesus. So, so the Old Testament was already set. It was its own canon, if you will. When it was written in Greek, it was in Alexandria that the entire Old Testament was penned in Greek, formed and there. I mean, this place was a place of study. And Apollos was incredible not only a uh, logician, he could think through these things and he processed them. He actually was an incredible speaker. In fact, uh, like Luther, I agree that I think uh, the book of Hebrews was actually written by Apollos. If you ever want to read an amazing um, kind of in the Bible co commentary of the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. 
And if you read it, it unpacks who is Jesus as is to Abraham, Moses. I mean, it's incredible. And I think that Apollos pinned that and that the Lord used him for that. But even as an incredible speaker, there's a word that comes up here twice that lets us know that you can be the one who has all the giftings and yet can miss a little bit of it. You may have caught this. It said it two times, one in the positive, one in negative. <clears throat> it says in verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you see this word accurate come up. So Apollos being one of the most incredible learners that we can know, still, as much as he was accurate, still wasn't accurate enough. And here's what it meant. That when it said that he only knew the baptism of John, what that meant was that he only understood Jesus in his life, his teachings, his whole, uh, who he was up through that baptism. And that he knew Jesus was, was even the Messiah. But where he, he stopped, where his knowledge, his, where Priscilla and Aquila had to come out and teach him, this couple, this wonderful couple, this man and wife that had been uh, following Paul, was to say, you understand Jesus in this, but you don't understand that Jesus not only resurrected and then is in heaven, but sent his Holy Spirit. That it's not, doesn't end in the baptism of John, it, it continues with the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus brings. And that is enormously different. Because what that does is it takes the teachings of Jesus and it doesn't just make them something that we can learn. It makes them something we live. It makes them something that go down deep within us. Look, one of the, when I was in seminary, and I remember saying this to a lot of people, a lot of seminary friends of mine, as we were studying in seminary and um, we kind of immersed ourselves in it. And, uh, and Matt Walker, who's up here, he's one of our deacons, he's in seminary now. He could probably tell you this. It's, it's an interesting thing to take on um, it's so much study. Like you just take these books and papers and being in, the, in a library or being in a class and you're studying this so much that it is very easy that I noticed that my relationship with the Lord felt somewhat disjointed sometimes. I'm not saying Matt's felt this, but I know I felt this. Because oftentimes when you study and you get into that, you can sometimes mistake learnedness for relationship. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't study, but it means that the accuracy of our study, where it's leading us, that's the point, right? That's what they're getting at. Priscilla and Aquila, this is beautiful, that it shows that it's not, that, that Apollos as a disciple isn't just being discipled by someone shouting from the crowd, hey, you're wrong, here's the logic. He was privately pulled aside. Commentators make more and more of this. He was privately pulled aside by this couple. And notice two disciples that, that Priscilla and Aquila a woman and a man, discipling and teaching the Word of God, living that into Apollos' life to help him understand the Word of God more accurately. So it wasn't just more teaching that he needed. It was the accurate picture of where that's lead, his learning is leading to the Lord Jesus and following him. 
there's a, a article I read by a guy who um, was talking about discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. You know, that's kind of a big buzzword. Uh, even if you've grown up in the church, you can kind of talk about that. I'm looking for someone to disciple me. You know, that, there's nothing wrong with that language, but sometimes I think that we can overuse that. And it's good that we have individual relationships in our lives. But this guy was really drawing out the fact, hey, that is a beautiful thing. But I was discipled by something bigger. He said this. He said, somewhere along the way, I picked up the idea that discipleship was only about finding a mentor who could, you know, with his wit and wisdom, heal my wounds, bring me closer to Jesus. I thought there'd be notebooks, coffee, in-depth Bible studies. I imagined he'd be older, wiser, profound, interested in my life. Maybe you found that kind of person, and if so, that is wonderful. But here's what actually happened to me. I was discipled by the church. My regular old normal church. I showed up, heard sermons, attended classes, was a part of get-togethers and in relationships. I was discipled by the church. And I say that to you, not that individual relationships, I have those in my life, they've been very meaningful. But it's also to expand and look at what happens with Priscilla and Aquila here is that it wasn't just a mentor mentor thing. It was that the church surrounded him. And you know what a problem that would become in Corinthians we'd read about is that in Corinthians, Apollos and others, as Paul would have to write, would become, people would say, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a, I follow Apollos. It'd become who you follow. It was this big problem that they had. Paul had to talk about it with them when they said, uh, when they would say that. And no one just devote to one person or the other, but that I watered, Paul says. I mean, I planted and Apollos watered. They were a part of this church together. It's not about who you follow. And isn't that something that I think we can really get into the, the mix of? Is we can put and miss the fact of what does it mean for all of us to lean into one another with the accurate understanding of what are the scriptures saying that yes, we need to be in our Bible. We need to be learning and growing. We need to be diving in, reading it, understanding it. The baptism of John, it doesn't, that, that even Apollos with all the volumes of books can, can miss that. How are we, lean, do, here's the question. Do you know who you're following? Do you know the Lord Jesus and who he is in the scripture, in the Bible, who he lets himself be revealed to be in the Bible? And are we talking about that? Are we going through that more accurately, learning who we are in Him so that we as a church are coming together and doing that, be it one person or all of us, that we're all discussing that. But here's the thing that, that they're, they're wanting to teach Apollos is that the Bible is a wonderful means of grace, but it is an awful Savior. Prayer is an incredible means of grace. It's a means by which we speak to the Lord, but it is a terrible Savior. When we devote ourselves to the things that drive us to God rather than following Him, Himself, we can miss it. Look, coming to this table is a great picture of that. This table is a picture of what the disciples in the early church <clears throat> really came to, and in fact, were misunderstood by the surrounding culture often when they came to this table. 
a lot of the surrounding ideas of what this table was outside of the church was, oh man, are they cannibals? Are they eating body and blood? Is this weird that they call each other brother and sister? What what is this table really about? This table is a connection to the reality that we're not in in just devotees. We're not just followers of a church. And we're not followers of a table. We're followers of Jesus. See, I, I don't set this. This isn't my table. This isn't uh, uh, our denomination's table. This isn't uh, Christ Fred's Music Road table. This is actually Jesus' table that he sets for those who are in relationship to him. And it's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. To, to take this body and blood is to claim that you follow him. You are a disciple when you come to this table. You are that. When you take it in your hand and when you consume it, you are proclaiming that. And if you're here this morning and and maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I follow Jesus. Like I'm still trying to make sense of what this is and who he is. Let's take up the Bible. Let's look at it together. I'm doing that with a number of people now already. Actually, in, in fact, I want to tell you this. We have a few Bibles in the back. If you're here and you don't own a Bible or have one, we've bought some for you to just take with you. Outside on the table when you come in, they're all sitting on that table. If you need one, let's take it up and look together at what does it really mean to follow him? What does it really mean to come to this table, not as perfect disciples, but as learners of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus and be devoted to him? Amen.